2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about the forgotten histories of the Thames estuary, with Caroline Crampton and her new book, The Way to the Sea. Caroline Crampton is a writer and editor who contributes regularly to The Guardian, The Mail on Sunday and The New Humanist. She's appeared as a broadcaster on Newsnight, Sky News and BBC Radio 4 and The Way to the Sea, The Forgotten Histories of the Thames Estuary, which we're going to be talking about today. Here's her first book. Caroline, welcome to Little Atom.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Let's talk about where the idea to write this book came from in the first place.
3: So it's not something that I can pinpoint very accurately, unfortunately, but I suppose it had its origins in conversations I would have with my sister when I was in my late teens, early 20s. She's six years younger than me so she kind of went through all of the teenage phases at one remove, almost technologically a whole generation afterwards it felt like. And we would talk about how when it came up in conversation with parents of friends, that our parents weren't British, that they were from South Africa, people would always naturally ask, like, oh, so you know, when did they come here? How did they, how did they come to be here? And we would explain, maybe slightly begrudgingly, that they built their own boat and sailed it up the Atlantic and then lived on it for a while. And that's why we happened to be here. And people would quite naturally react like you would to any sort of eccentric origin story and be like, what? Really? Tell me more about how that happened that gets a bit weary. (laughs) And what my sister and I used to talk about is that it's difficult to tell that story over and over again Mm -hmm. and do it justice each time and feel like you're accurately conveying to people who are hearing it for the first time that it is pretty amazing what our parents did. It is absurd and unusual. And we both got very jaded and very kind of, "Mm, yeah, whatever about it. And so from all those conversations, this idea was planted in my mind that I would like to try and do it properly. I would like to one time write it down <laughs> accurately and talk to them about it and find all these details that I'd not been asking them about because I was so bored of their story. And so that's really where the book started and in You know, it's a weird thing to interview your own parents, but I did do it repeatedly. And through those conversations and then transcribing them and reading them back, I sort of realised that the common thread through all of it was the Thames and the Thames estuary. That it's not just a question of how did they come to be in Britain, it's how did they come to be in this bit of Britain? How did they come to live on the Isle of Sheppey as their first land-based home in the UK? And so that's where the, the whole theme of the book came together, really, their story. Plus, I want to write about the estuary.
2: And indeed, this is not the story of your parents building a boat and sailing it no, from South Africa still through not. the Atlantic all the way to here. As you said, it's, it's basically about when they arrive here, you know, the very last bit of that journey, which I guess they would have expected to be like, you know, quite mundane and the safe bit after having traversed the Atlantic. But of course, the, you know, the Thames estuary, as we'll go on to talk about, is, you know, one of the shipping lanes in the world with the most shipwrecks. So let's talk about when they first get here when they how do they end up staying basically
3: so their very first landing in britain was actually down in cornwall in Mm -hmm. falmouth because if you come up the atlantic that's kind of the first place you get to and then they spent i think four or five months kind of just cruising around this you know they weren't initially thinking that this was like a long-term emigration Mm. they were thinking you know we've saved up we're in our late 20s we'll have a couple of years as a kind of career break we'll do casual work and we'll just see the world and so they sailed all around the coast of Britain Uh, they went to Scotland they went around Ireland and then it sort of started being winter and I don't think they'd really got their heads around the fact that winter really means winter in northern Europe they would never been here before so they decided that they would moor the boat in central London and get whatever jobs they could for the winter and then you know see where they were after that. And so they gradually brought the boat all along the south coast of Britain, up the English Channel, then round the coast of Kent and into the Thames, uh, sort of hugging the North Kent shore. There's various different channels you can use to get into Mm -hmm. London, but they used that one. And yeah, then they spent the winter in St Catherine's Dock, um, right by Tower Bridge. And this was 1984.
2: So St Catherine's Dock does not look anything like what St Catherine's Dock looks like now at that point, obviously. No, I mean
3: now it's got, uh, you know, bougie shops and restaurants in the old warehouse buildings, and I think the converted flats go for millions of pounds. And also just the boats that moor there, Mm -hmm. these huge super yachts and stuff, none of that when they were living there. People on houseboats, broken bits of Thames barge, you know, uh, the occasional visiting group of Dutch yachtsmen over for a holiday, that kind of thing.
2: And then they moved down to the North Kent coast eventually, settled down there, father gets a job. Um, And so you basically grow up on the Thames estuary... Now, they've obviously moved into a house by this point, but you spend a lot of time on boats with them on the estuary, don't
3: you? That's right, yeah. So the boat that they built in Cape Town called Skirtso, they you know still had in, until I was about 12, and then they sold it and got a different one. Uh, so there's always been a boat. And... Yeah, so my dad is an engineer and he got a job at the steelworks on the Isle of Sheppey and uh, my mum got a job down there as well. So I think the steelworks, it was one of those old fashioned things that probably doesn't happen so much anymore, but I think the steelworks actually got them a house in that kind of company town quite way so their first home was near Minster on the Isle of Sheppey. I mm-hmm. uh, still had the boat nearby every weekend and it's just one of those stated facts of their lives so the whole time my mum was pregnant with me she would sail you know I think I was six weeks old the first time I was taken on the boat and then from then on it was all free time all holidays all weekends were spent on the boat.
2: So I live on the other side of the Thames mm-hmm. estuary at the moment in South End, although not for much longer as it happens but and I love it. You know. I, I, I'm not from that area, but you know, I've lived there for about 10 years and that whole end of the Thames Estuary is one of my favourite places in the world now. I absolutely love it. I'm obviously a bit weird because there's it's, it's not a lot of people who share that opinion, is there?
3: No, it's an unusual place to love. And there are different reasons for that. And I sort of tried to get at some of them through the process of writing the book. And I think one of the main ones is that to a lot of people, just what the landscape looks like is quite off-putting and if you haven't seen it that's just because it's very flat and marshy and muddy and some in some sort of states of the tide and light you can't really see where the water finishes and the land begins and the land finishes and the sky begins and those are the
2: best bits
3: yeah I think so too but I think Well, someone once said to me that part of the Thames Estuary's problem is it's really hard to photograph. And I do think there's a lot in that, that it's very hard to take a good... To
2: make look pretty.
3: Yeah, to take a picture that captures that. And actually, a person who said that to me is a photographer. He took the picture that's in the front of my book because I think he's one of the few people that is really good at that. But, you know, he has to wade right out at low tide in order to get those shots and, you know... You can't take a good snap of it from just casually on your phone. And so therefore it's hard to communicate that it's gorgeous, I think. And then there are other secondary things. Like, um, it's much better now, but there are still places out in the Thames Estuary that are quite hard to get to. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a car, You know, the public transport is not great, even though you're so close to London. Until quite recently, it smelled quite bad. Pollution and sort of industrial waste and so on is a big theme of the Thames Estuary. And then also it depends on your attitude to sort of industrial architecture, I think. I think there is a small but growing group of people who recognise stuff like Battersea Power Station, uh, you know, the Tate Modern Building, and that kind of thing as really interesting architecture that it's worth appreciating. But there's long been a, shall we call it the Simon Jenkinsy school of thought that says, cover it up, knock it down, hide it away.
2: So the book... Contains an exploration of the you know the entire length of the Thames from its source to the estuary, but the final section is a boat trip that you take back with your parents mm-hmm. from. That, well, from Lighthouse, but you know, let's say from St Catherine's Dark, where they first. Lived. Incidentally,
3: the reason why it's not St Catherine's is because it was too expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would. I, <laughs> I would have liked St Catherine's for the symmetry, but I couldn't even. I couldn't get in because it was full. And even if I had been able to, it would have been prohibitively expensive.
2: The actual boat part of the of the journey. I want to spend some time before we talk about the things you see and the history, and we'll go back and look at. We'll spend some time you know, back up on the rest of the Thames as well. But I want to talk about the actual planning of that trip. So when you decided you were going to do this, how do you how do you set about planning it? So
3: I think the first thing I did was tell my parents and, well, ask them if they would be interested in taking part. Fortunately, they were. And then there were all kinds of boring logistical things to balance like, you know, when is a free weekend when everyone can be in the same place and, you know, they had to bring, they keep their boat in Ramsgate now, um, sort of right round the the corner of Kent, so, you know, they had to bring it up first so that we could come out so it was a, you know, a couple of days of, of effort for them. And then once we narrowed down a date and got the state of the tides worked out because that the tide is a big deal in the Thames estuary. And even if you're going to motor some of the way, which we did, you don't really want to be doing that into an adverse tide just because it takes so long and it's not very pleasant. Um, so, you know, you have to plan your timings, all of that. And then I borrowed the charts my parents still had the charts they'd bought when they first did that journey in the 80s and my dad let me borrow them and I also bought new ones because the Admiralty issues new charts all the time to make sure jumps you know sandbags move and you need to be up to date and so I kind of spent ages comparing the two charts and working out I made a long long list of place names that interested me or that I remembered or that seemed significant and I exchanged a lot of emails with my dad about what was possible and viable and desirable in trying to see all of these places. And eventually we sort of evolved a route. And I don't know if he even wrote it down. I think he just had it in his head. And then that's that's what we did. We were actually made, able to tack on, um, this isn't really in the book because it's boring but um my parents then were going to carry on up the east coast so we found a place where they could drop me off on the coast and I could come back (laughs) I think it was Harwich in the end
2: let's go back up the other end then so you spent some time trying to locate the source of the Thames
3: yeah so this was actually it wasn't in my original proposal for the book I was just going to write about the Thames estuary and Mm. I felt quite felt quite militant about that because if you're interested in this area and if you've ever explored any other books that are about the Thames they will claim to be about the whole Thames, mm-hmm. but they, won't men- they either won't mention the estuary at all, or there'll be a small epilogue. So Peter Aykroyd's The Sacred Thames is a really good example of this, which I otherwise think is a great book. But there's a small, I think it's six pages, called Downriver, right at the end. Everything from Woolwich is Downriver. And so I felt quite strongly that I wanted to be the corrective to that and that I wanted to expand the Downriver section into an entire book. And then when I was having early discussions with the publisher and stuff, they said, well, yes, absolutely, you should do that, but you should show people where you've come from first. And so that's and I, I like that as an idea that where other books were weighted in the opposite direction, I wanted to get through the whole of the Thames to, say, Woolwich a bit-ish, quite quickly, first couple of chapters, and then the whole rest of the thing could be the estuary in detail. So that required me to actually go and work out where the Thames starts, which is not something I'd ever done before. And there are two sort of competing claims for the source of the Thames. Uh, There's one at a place called Silver Springs in Gloucestershire which is actually I don't credit its claim because I th- it's actually the source of a tributary to the Thames I think and then what I think is the actual source of the Thames is a, a little village called Kemble in the Cotswolds uh, it's about a half an hour walk from the station if you want to go and find it there's a plaque in the field unfortunately at the time I went, and from my understanding most of the time, you can't actually see the river at Kemble. It runs underground <laughs> for about two or three miles, depending on how much rain there's been recently. Mm. Probably re- at the moment you can see it there, but it has to be really wet and boggy. But yeah, it's a strange experience, actually, because because the river's there sometimes. It flows on the above ground sometimes there's a there's a stream bed and there's all of the things you would expect in the landscape like trees that sort of arch over it and there's just nothing there there's no you can walk down the riverbed it's empty
2: well, I must admit, Caroline, I'm also keen to dispense with the the bit that's about the the, the non-tidal Thames and then get us down to the mm-hmm. estuary as quickly as possible. But one thing I do want to talk about, because the book is about you know yourself and your history with the river, let's talk for a moment about the section of the river that flows through Oxford, because you have a different relationship with that part, don't
3: you? Yeah, so I hadn't seen that part of it. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think I'd seen anything of the Thames above London before I went to university in Oxford when I was 18. And to start with, I couldn't really connect the two because the river in Oxford and its surroundings is, well, it has a whole separate name. You know, it's called the Isis, even though it's the same river. Oxford likes fancy words for stuff. And it's, you know, it's this beautiful sort of pastoral stream. People do punting and rowing. And it's just so, you can't in your head think this is the same place where the Montgomery's wreck sticks out by the Isle of Sheppey. It just doesn't. It makes sense, but it is the same place. And you know, I've I've looked back now, and I think when I was going to university, I was so incredibly clueless. Like no one in my family had been to university in this country before. I knew that you know Oxford was a thing you tried for, and you know only a few people got to go and you were lucky if you got in but I didn't read anything about it or about the other kinds of people who went there or anything and I got there I'd also just been diagnosed with cancer about nine months before so I was sort of dealing with all of that as well and I found the whole thing overwhelming to be honest and not particularly pleasant so the river became quite an important way of feeling normal so I used to just sort of take myself off for a few hours and go there's a you know great river path that runs for miles all the way through the river in Oxford and I would just go and sort of wander up and down there and then I would go back to college and pretend to be fine again.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Caroline Crampton and we're talking about her book The Way to the Sea, The Forgotten Histories of the Thames Estuary. And so Caroline let's zoom ourselves all the way back down to roughly the area of the Thames barrier Mm -hmm. which you visit and you talk to its chief engineer. I want to in a minute talk about the famous flood of 53 which inundated Canby Island which is near where I live but let's talk about some previous floods because they all through history there has been terrible floods sometimes mm. every you know once every hundred years or so
3: yeah and something when I've 'Cause I knew of the nineteen fifty three flood. I didn't I'd never really heard of any of the ones before, and when I started sort of doing proper research for the book, I just came across this repeating pattern that every time the Thames had a major flood, it was the worst time it had ever happened. Until the next time it happened. And yet no one ever did anything about it. No one, you know, stopped people living in houses that were prone to be flooding or stopped building important buildings right next to the river. It just it seems like the floods were sufficiently far apart for no government or whatever to sort of look far enough ahead and say we should do something about this. And I suppose the one that surprised me the most was the one in 1928 where the river actually broke the embankment right opposite what's now Tate Britain, and flooded the gallery, damaging some paintings. Uh, I think it's about a dozen people died in basement flats in Pimlico because the water just filled up faster than they could get out. And, you know, hundreds, thousands of other people had to be evacuated because their houses were submerged. And yet still nothing happened. The houses were dried out, the people moved back in, and that, that was the end of it, until... 1953 but you can go back centuries and centuries I found some of the stories very amusing like there's some stuff from the sort of 13th and 14th centuries of lawyers who worked in Westminster Hall um, punting about the place in boats because the river had risen or you know the water draining away and fish being left on the floor so it's just been going on for a thousand years roughly that you can get written record for and but it wasn't until uh, what happened in 1953 that, uh, you know, there was a sort of major state effort to start protecting buildings and people.
2: And so what happens in 1953?
3: A horrible coincidence of uh, low pressure out in the North Sea, a very, very full river because of uh, heavy rainfall, and then a really, really high spring tide. So you get a kind of storm surge, I suppose would be the word for it. Coming in with the the flood tide is, you know, feet, metres higher than it usually is. And that's dreadful in its own right, but what's almost worse is that each community along, all along the eastern coast of England and in through the estuary sort of experienced that sudden recognition that water was coming at them on their own. And there was no system for the people out in Lincolnshire to warn the people inside what was coming. So there was no preparation, there was no evacuation before the event. And there was terrible loss of life, about 300 people in total in Britain died. Some of them drowned and some of them managed to get out onto the roofs of their houses and then died of exposure before they could be, you know, taken taken off by the emergency services. So it was horrible and dreadful and, you know, many hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of damage done. And uh, after that, I think, at least um, what Andy Batchelor, who's the director at the Thames Barrier said, is that after that, there was some recognition that... We couldn't have that happen again.
2: it's obviously still decades before the Thames barrier is you know yeah. is, is, is built and open, but this is a you know an, an enormous engineering undertaking with actually you know innovative revolutionary hydraulics and um, that sort of had to be invented mm. for it and there's this thing it's out there i mean it is sort of a bit in the middle of nowhere, but it's this incredible huge thing, and yet we just don't really like no one goes to visit it, we don't really think about it.
3: No, the people there would love you to go and visit, though. It's very sweet. They have a visitor centre, they have all these displays explaining the engineering history of it and stuff about what I've been just been saying about the 1953 flood. But yeah, they I think they get school trips, but they don't really get, you know, your average tourist. Uh, which is a shame because it is really interesting. They do have an annual test closure that they try and invite the public to go to where they, they just close it without there being a need for it in order to check that everything's working okay. So if you are interested in seeing what it looks like when it closes, that is worth going to. But um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where the reason why I think people don't really know that it's there is because it's working. You would know about it if it broke.
2: Now, I've said I, I really love the Thames Estuary, but I'm not really going to sell it because we are going to talk about sort of death and yeah. destruction for, for a bit. I want to talk about the, um, the 1878 Princess Alice disaster, which again, I, I think is a thing that's pretty much forgotten. But incredi- like an incredibly destructive accident.
3: Yeah, and if the most famous shipwreck in Britain is like the Mary Rose or something, this is so much more interesting and so much more horrible. If that's how you like your history, you know, it's got everything. But yeah, so this was um, this was 1878, a pleasure steamer that had been down to Gravesend with about 900 people on board just as a day trip. There were sort of pleasure gardens in Gravesend that you could go and visit. And on the way back up, it hits midstream a massive coal ship called the Bywell Castle. The Bywell Castle incidentally doesn't really have a scratch on it but the Princess Alice breaks in half and it was already overloaded. I think it was only really meant to have about 650 people on it so it's very top heavy and yeah this little steamer breaks in half and everyone ends up in the water and almost everybody dies which in itself is awful but the really horrible part is that this happened as it complete by coincidence it happened right at the point where there are these two pumping stations sewage pumping stations that face each other across the river and the way London sanitation worked at this point was that Joseph Bazalgette had built his amazing new sewers his amazing embankments and they were pumping all of London's sewage east to these two pumping stations and then at high tide twice a day they would shoot it out into the river, right at the point, the slack point after high water, right before the river starts to flood out again. And then the idea being that that tide would take all the gross stuff away. And these people ended up in the river right at the moment just after the start. So yes, they did drown, but they didn't drown in water. And there was some really horrible stuff. The newspapers at the time, to be fair, covered it a lot. The Times in particular seemed to have taken it up as a big campaign and they were calling on politicians to do something and all of this. But that hasn't really made it into the history books subsequently. But yeah, horrible stuff like um, about 120 of the bodies were just never identified because they were just too disfigured by the awful stuff they'd been immersed in and you know the undertakers had to build specially large coffins because people had swelled up so much like it's really grim and yeah it would have been bad without the sewage but the Thames isn't that uh, isn't that wide and it doesn't flow that fast at that point so more rescues could have happened if it weren't for that
2: yeah let's talk about a nicer thing before we come to another (laughs) another shipwreck a woman called Margaret Ursula Jones there's as you discuss in the book you know people can just go down In central London, you can go down to the river when the tide's out. Often just find stuff that's been, you know, like Mm. tiny archaeological finds that have signs of civilization going back you know centuries but this woman Margaret Ursula Jones did this on a rather massive scale.
3: Yeah so she was what was known was known now as rescue archaeology which is this sort of element of archaeology where once you've identified something is down there you just get it out as fast as possible because some building or industry is going to make it inaccessible. In this case this was at a place called Mucking in Essex and they I think it was actually really pioneering um, aerial photography. Initially, someone spotted it in aerial reconnaissance that the Luftwaffe had done during the war. And then afterwards, you know, they were able to see, right, there's something down there we can see in these photographs. And they found this incredible multi-layered settlement over about 3,000 years, uh, sort of from like Neolithic right through to sort of early Roman and Anglo-Saxon uh, with burial chambers and settlements and just the whole nine yards, everything. And it's so unusual, I think, for there to be multiple settlements on top of each other like that, that they decided that the gravel pits that were going to be built on top of this, they couldn't build them until this had been properly excavated. So Margaret Jones was in charge of the effort to do that. And it turned in, I think it's Europe's largest ever archaeological dig in terms of the thousands of people took part in it. She had a shoestring budget. So she put out a call across Europe for students, particularly history and archaeology students, if you want some experience, you know, I can give it to you. And so it was this strange kind of hippie encampment on this archaeological dig. They lived there year round for 12 years, I think, and found some extraordinary things. Um, you can see one of the beakers they found is on permanent display in the British Museum. Um, and there's lots of other stuff in the Museum of Essex in Thurrock.
2: I said we're going to talk about another shipwreck. And everybody that lives in South End, even though it's on your side <laughs> of the river, um, will be familiar with the wreck of the SS Richard Montgomery, uh-huh. which is a story that most people probably won't be familiar with. Tell us what this ship is.
3: So this was an American Liberty ship carrying ammunition that was on its way, came across the Atlantic towards the end of the war. I think it was 1944. And it was anchored. The place where it anchored, the Nore, is a very old and famous anchorage. It's sort of a good safe place for ships to Mm. anchor waiting to either go up the Thames or, in this case, I think the Montgomery was waiting for other ships to come and join it and then they were going to head over the channel in a convoy. And the anchor dragged, the captain was asleep, I think, and the Montgomery broke its back over a sandbank. And the trouble is that the Montgomery was full of many, many tonnes of live ammunition and still is. So you can see at low tide, Mm. you can see its mast sticking up out of the water and it's just still there and... No one really knows what to do about it. The official government position is it's safest just to leave it where it is. No one knows, you know, they can't risk sending divers down or anything like that because A, they might die and B, it might all blow up. So yeah, they just just leave it and monitor it, make sure nothing goes near it. And there are all these theories about what would happen if it did actually blow up. Um, I think even the mildest suggests that it would set off a sort of mini tsunami and break a lot of windows. And part of that is actually based on, I think it was in the 60s, a much smaller Polish ship that contained ammunition sank in the channel. And they did try and recover it. And it did blow up and it did break everybody's windows in Folkestone. (laughs) So there is a bit of a precedent that maybe actually the safest thing to do is to do nothing.
2: Just one more question then, just to finish it off. And, you know, we've said multiple times how much we like this part of the world, which seems like a, often a weird thing to do, but there are plenty of artists and writers who are also keen on mm. the Thames Estuary, Joseph Conrad, Dickens and, and Turner. What's What's the appeal for them, do you think?
3: Um, lots of different things, but what unites all of them is how much they they like the landscape itself and how much they enjoy sort of portraying it. So whether that's, you know, Turner painting these incredible skies over the estuary, or, you know, Conrad wrote his sort of colonial narratives comparing the Thames with rivers in the Congo in Heart of Darkness, or um, Dickens and Great Expectations writing about prison hulks and sort of, poverty and desolation all of it is all in that one landscape and I think they they all really enjoyed representing it and there are more modern writers doing it as well I'm a big fan of the novels of Nicola Barker mm-hmm. um, and she's written what gets loosely called her Thames Gateway trilogy um, she has three novels that are sort of set in and around one on the Isle of Sheppey uh, one in sort of East London and one in Ashford that all have resonances of that as well so yeah it's always I think been quite inspiring to people in the way that a blank space can be.
2: So I've been talking to Caroline Crampton. We've been talking about her debut book, The Way to the Sea, The Forgotten Histories of the Thames Estuary, which is out in the UK from Granter. Caroline, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with thank us. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.